This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. I do invite Naomi and then Megan to come and read the Bible for us. This morning I'm reading from the book of Luke, from chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favoured one, the Lord is with you. She was much perplexed by his words and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. The second reading comes from Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. 
May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May all nations be blessed in him. May they pronounce him happy. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are ended. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please do be seated. Now, around about the year 1190 AD, the monks at Glastonbury Abbey said that they had made a remarkable discovery. They had discovered the bones of the legendary King Arthur and his wife. Do you know the name of his wife? Anyone say it? Guinevere, that's right. Five metres under the earth, the monks said that they uncovered an unmarked tomb and the lead cross bearing an inscription, Here lies Arthur, the king that was and the king that shall be. Or according to some reports, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. The story was that gravely wounded in battle, the warrior king Arthur had retreated to the Isle of Avalon, which in those days was not on the northern beaches, and would return one day to unite his country once again, vanquish its enemies and lead it into peace and prosperity, just as he had in the good old days of Camelot. And the legend of Arthur's return had a powerful hold over the British imagination in the Middle Ages. It was a very contested legend, by the way. It was unsure, they were unsure whether he was a Welsh king who would liberate the Welsh from the English, or he was an Anglo-Saxon king who would liberate the Anglo-Saxons from the Normans, or whether he was a British king or a, a Cornish king. Uh, it was a bit contested, this legend. Uh, even in uh, the 16th century, one king, uh, Henry VII, coming to the throne, named his first son Arthur in the hope of inspiring the nation and of legitimising his rule. Sadly, that Arthur died age 16. And do you know who they got instead? Henry VIII, of course. Now, the Arthurian legend was, you might say, the West Wing of the Middle Ages. It was a fantasy of what life would be like under a perfect leader. Now, these dreams are never far from us in whatever age, especially when things are tough and we feel anxious and powerless or when there's division in our nation or a lack of what we feel is direction. We long for someone who is both genuinely good and has the power to change things, to come and, well, change things, put them right. We want to see justice or our version of it. We want our nation to prosper or at least we want to prosper. We want deliverance from our enemies. Justice 
prosperity and salvation altogether. This is a vision of a nation truly at peace, and we long for it. Now, we're a practical people here in Australia, and we're not prone to fantasies about kings or presidents. We celebrate our election days with sausages. But nevertheless, we do often project our dreams onto our political leaders. The deep frustration that so many of us feel with our governments is partly because we share in the same dream that made that Arthurian legend so potent in its time. That one day, a leader will arise or a party will come to power who will lead our community into true peace that will have justice, prosperity and salvation. Now, this is the dream of Psalm 72. You'll find that, by the way, it'll be really help if you'd have that open in front of you. It's in your order of service. It's a prayer for a king who will bring justice, prosperity and salvation. And the first four verses of this psalm are a sort of overture, a preview of what the rest of the psalm is about. And then the rest of the psalm plays the tune, a tune of justice, prosperity and salvation. So we see in verses 5 to 7 and then back in verses 16 to 17, the prayer that the king will reign for a long time so that he will bring peace and prosperity, that his reign will endure for an age eternally so that there will be steadiness and stability in his government. We in Australia know what it's like to have a chopping and changing leadership in our nation and how unsettling that is. May he live, says the psalmist, while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. His long life will cause the land to flourish. In verse 6, his presence will be like the showers that water the earth. In verse 16, we read, May there be an abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the top of the mountains. It will be so prosperous that we'll be even farming the top of Kosciuszko. It'll be such an age of prosperity. There's prosperity and also there's salvation, deliverance from the enemies of the people. We see this in in verses 8 to 11 and then in verses 14 to 15. His powerful reign extends from sea to shining sea. He's so dominant that his enemies bring him tribute and service. The land is safe and secure And the citizens of this land, the subjects of his rule, are safe and secure because the king, this king, has become an emperor. Other kings do not mass their armies against him, but rather come in tribute from far off lands, from Seba and Sheba, from Tarshish and from the isles, adding to the riches of his nation. This is far more than salvation for the people. It's actually dominion, an empire on which the sun never sets. An empire that is global, universal, as we see in verse 11. For all kings bow to him, all nations serve him. And he is a king who brings justice and righteousness. God's righteousness is given to him and he judges with justice. That's the opening prayer, isn't it? God, would you give our king your justice and your righteousness? And so that righteousness under him will flourish like a rainforest. Under his rule, just as prosperity comes from the tops of the mountains, so the hills will give up righteousness. The king is so just that righteousness seems to be part of the land itself. The prayer 
This prayer for an ideal king who will embody justice and deliver his people and bring them prosperity is a prayer for what the Jews call shalom, a word that our Jewish neighbours use as a greeting today, for God's peace. It's not freedom from hostilities. It's not a laying down of weapons while we build up our resources so we can attack one another once again. This is a fulfilment of all that God promises for his creation and for his people. It's a fulfillment of all that is promised to Abraham in those great promises of God so long ago for God's people to live in God's land, a land flowing with milk and honey under God's rule, protected and secure and flourishing, not the vassal state of anyone else, not crushed by debt and poverty, not hungry for food. But why does the king deserve this? How is this psalm not a piece of flag-waving, saber-rattling nationalism, jingoism of the kind that blights modern history? And why should this king be the one to rule over all other kings? Why should this nation's prayer be answered? After all, doesn't every prayer, doesn't every nation pray this or wish this? I do sometimes wonder if we, particularly when you watch the Olympics, if you lined up all the national anthems, if you translated them all and put them all on one piece of paper, would you find some versions that are just incompatible for one another? I mean, I think you probably would. Can the prayer of India and the prayer of Pakistan actually be answered at the same time? Can the prayer of Croatia and the prayer of Serbia be answered? Can the prayer of Russia and the prayer of the Ukraine? Can the prayer of China and the prayer of Taiwan? Can we really be happy to hear, rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves, Britons never shall be saved, slaves. The complicated history of the British Empire meant freedom for its own people, but not always freedom for the people it ruled as the bloody history of India shows. Mercifully, Germans no longer sing Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in der Welt, as they used to. And that's the difficulty of this psalm, for we know how vexed the question of human power is, don't we? We know how the liberation of one people can mean the enslavement, the subjection of another. We know that the prosperity of one nation can mean the impoverishment of another. We know that the realm, a realm of freedom and justice and peace is often protected by bloody and devious acts. In our own era, the great democracies who proclaim from the rooftops their commitment to human rights and justice and freedom for all have protected their prosperity and their freedom by propping up evil dictatorships who are the antithesis of all they say they stand for. Well, the Bible itself contains quite a few warnings about human kingship, about wishing that a human king would deliver on all we want for. It contains warnings about the ways in which human kings and human leaders accumulate power, military power and accumulate money and wealth for themselves. It is prophetic of our own era in that regard. In fact, when Israel came and asked for a king because it wanted to be like the other nations, well, that was a complicated story. We can read about that in 1 Samuel, the story, first of all, of Saul before King David came to the throne. So why does this king deserve to have this prayer prayed for him? Why does any people deserve to pray it? The answer is right at the heart of the psalm. 
You'll have noticed that almost every verse begins with may. May he, may he, may he do this. But verse 12 starts differently. It starts with for. There's an explanation here, a reason or a cause, and it's emphatic. Why should we be praying for this king in this way? Because right at the heart of this vision is his deliverance of the poor and the needy. For he delivers, verse 12, the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. May he have long reign, may he have prosperity, for his eye is on the needy. His eye is towards true justice and righteousness. This is a king who deserves the tributes of all the other kings because of what he does with his power. He rescues the poor. He delivers the needy. He defends those who have no defender. Their blood is precious. It's precious to him. That is, he demands justice from those who exploit and abuse the poor and the needy. They are not disposable to him. The poor of his land are not some workforce, some labor force there to build his pyramids or his cathedrals or his palaces. Indeed, they are precious. Indeed, the guiding mission of his rule is their deliverance. And he brings not just the justice of the law court to the poor, but the economic and systemic justice they need as well. He is a magistrate, sure, but he also distributes his justice. Who oppresses them? Who exploits and enslaves them? We know too well in our own day that the poor are easy meat for the unscrupulous, the payday loan sharks and purveyors of personal debt, the gambling industry with its veneer of glamour and luxury. It sickens me. The idea that it is some glamorous and luxurious activity, the activity of gambling, on which our government depends for its prosperity and wealth. It is a tax, as someone once said to me, on pensions and poverty. It is a disgrace that in our community we are known, and in this state of New South Wales, we are known as one of the leaders in, in, in exploiting the poor and underprivileged through the, industry of, through the gambling industry. The culture of rising property prices, which we sit and kind of enjoy, but nice for us, but push the port out to the fringes. The pushes of legal and illegal drugs that drive around these suburbs in their hotted up cars. Those who traffic women and even children for sex here in this city. Those businesses that underpay their workers, which is a regular and common practice in our, in our town. These things happen daily in our great city, and some of these with the approval and even support of the governments of both kinds that we elect. But that's not this king. If you can't be God's king, if you don't uphold God's vision of justice, you can't claim to be voting for God if you don't uphold his vision of justice, if that's not your motivation if that's not part of what you see as being justice itself. This vision of justice is an emphatic deliverance of the poor, the defenceless and the needy. But what's more, this king is not simply upholding justice for his poor at the expense 
of the poor of the other nations from whom he exacts tribute. Now, we might say, doesn't the burden of tributes paid to another nation usually fall most heavily on the poor of that nation? What's happening when the, the kings of Sheba and Seba and Tarshish and the Isles bring their tribute in? Where do they get their gifts, after all, if not from their own peasants? But the vision of this psalm goes way beyond the way empires usually work. For under the rule of this king, in verse 17, all nations will be blessed and will pronounce him happy. Here's an extraordinary picture of a universal global rule. A king who reigns not simply for, for his corner of the earth, but for all the world. And the justice of this one true king, blessed by God, will extend from sea to sea. His righteousness will not be confined within a nation's borders. There's nothing parochial about the justice of this king. But just a minute, which, which king could this be? And at this point, we may well ask, is the author of this psalm having himself on? Like the writers of the Arthurian legends or like Aaron Sorkin, the writer of the West Wing, wistfully longing for a kind of rule that could never come to pass and for the kind of ruler that no human could ever actually be. Does he not know his history or can he not foresee it? Doesn't he know how dangerous such fantasies often are? These pictures of idealised kingdoms, when we think that a human ruler or a human political system or a human political party will give us what we long for. Even Solomon, to whom this psalm is addressed, who was the high watermark for Israel's kings, had an, who had an empire, who received tribute, not from the king, but from the queen of Sheba, who was known for his wise and righteous judgments, even he was known for his excesses and his failures. And the line of kings that came after him were a shattering disappointment, one after the other. They exploited the poor and the needy, as we read in the prophets of the Old Testament. They gave tribute to Israel's enemies and made treaties with them. Then they were swept away by the tide of history. So what, does this, what king does this psalm point to? Can we pray how can we pray this prayer? We can pray it because we have a king. Because Jesus, the son of David, is the king truly described in this psalm. The king whom this prayer prophesies. He is the one true king deserving of these wishes. He's the one in whom we see God's justice and righteousness. He resisted the temptation when it was offered to him by Satan in the wilderness of power for its own sake and ruled instead as God's king, representing God's care for the poor and the weak and the needy. His heart filled with compassion for them. When he saw the lost, his heart was moved within him. In his death on the cross, he gives and brings and wins deliverance from evil and sin for those who need it. And so at his birth, tributes of gold and incense were, and myrrh were brought to him from the nations. Angels heralded, heralded him as a prince of peace, of shalom. He was named Jesus, which means God saves. He entered Jerusalem as a king, but on the back of a donkey. 
He was declared king of the Jews sarcastically by his torturers as they killed him. But it was this king whom even crucifixion could not destroy. Though he was put to death, he was declared son of God with power by the Holy Spirit being raised from the dead so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that this one, the humble Lord, is Lord. All nations are blessed in him and long does he reign. So this prayer is fulfilled in Jesus. But as we remember at Advent, there's more to go. The king has come, but we look for his return. We look for the fulfillment and completion of his reign. We look, we work towards that time when every knee will bow. We look to him, not as the English look to Arthur, whose return was to save one nation, but as the Lord of all things, with everything under his feet, with all nations revering him. As the old hymn says, we look for the day when Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. But what do we do now as we await the return of the king? Well, first of all, we should not transfer our hopes for true peace, for shalom, onto any other political leader. Oh, that is our temptation in our frustration at our political leaders and our political system. But the dream of Arthur was a beautiful mistake. A mistake, unfortunately and sadly, that Christians, along with other human beings, continue to make. We cannot forget the dark side of human power, of corruption, of exploitation, of enslavement, of ugly nationalism. We cannot imagine that getting our person as the premier or the prime minister or in office in some way or our party in will deliver on the kind of vision we see here. We must be aware that anyone we elect, any system we elect or propose or support is incomplete imperfect by definition because we Christians of all people know that human beings including us are sinful that's why we support democracy Christians have been leaders in supporting democracy as the best form of politics or as they say the least worst form because it provides a check on human sin the only politics that ultimately saves us and secures us is Jesus the only human being worth sitting on the throne is Christ. For Christians, human government is not about making any nation great, but, by, but about putting a check on the human propensity to do our worst to one another. But secondly, Psalm 72 should inform, should indeed inform how we vote and pray for our political leaders and our political system because it does give a picture of God's justice. We should pray that, that to God that he will fill our leaders with justice and give them his righteousness. And we should remember what the picture of God's righteousness looks like here. What is it like? It defends the cause of the needy. It has its eye on the poor and the oppressed. It treats every person as valuable, as precious. That's the question you should ask as you vote, first and foremost. 
Will the leader you support show compassion to the needy or cruelty? Is our country a welcoming and hospitable place? Is it a kind nation or is it cruel and inhospitable? Are we selectively kind to those we like but not to those we don't? Thirdly, though our primary citizenship as Christians is in Jesus' kingdom. Our primary citizenship as Christians is in Jesus' kingdom. A Christian, by definition, is the one who declares that Jesus is Lord. So we live now, today, as those who seek to do justice and act righteously in the way that Psalm 72 teaches us. We live in anticipation of his rule. We have been delivered by him. We know his salvation. We look to him to give us every good thing we need. We have prosperity from his hand and we anticipate in the heavenly kingdom everything we could wish for, all our desires. We seek now to be his agents of justice and righteousness, to do the things that our king would have done in this world. It's we who want to share his heart for the needy and the weak and the poor, the disenfranchised, the widow, the lost, the addicted, the foreigner, the disabled, the refugee, the guilty and ashamed, the victim of abuse. The heart of Jesus beats within his church. Is that your heart? Do you share the heart of the king you serve? And we should share his heart too to build a truly global empire. Not a global empire belonging to some corporation or belonging to some country, but the global empire of the true king, the prince of peace, by inviting people of every nation and every tongue to bow the knee to him and to accept him as their Lord. We don't do this by sending guns and tanks, but by sharing the good news that there is indeed a king, one who is truly worthy of our tribute and our praise, in whom is found true peace and all the longings of our hearts, Jesus Christ, the humble Lord, the risen King. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.